The next section is the 144 that are sealed. Chapter 7. In this section, the author deals with the first aside in Revelation. Some call these sections interludes, but interlude is not quite the right word because there's no sense of break in action from Revelation 4 through 6 to be picked up in Revelation 8. Now, some people call this an interlude. Like God is um, going through this action and he's like, he hits the pause button and says, oh, by the way, let's talk about the seven seals. Okay? And then he unpauses the button and goes to chapter 8. I think an aside is a better understanding. And by aside, I think he's saying this is happening at the same time. It's parallel. Most scholars believe that these asides that break into are more of a parallel event. Now, we can argue all day long whether the, 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 three, the, three, the, the seven plagues and then the seven plagues and seven plagues recapitulation, that they're all parallel. I don't know. But most people believe that these are sides are parallel. And I say that because even when we get to chapter 12, everybody agrees that chapter 12 is parallel. And you'll see that when we get there. And I've already mentioned Richardson. So this aside is the first aside in the drama of the apocalypse. It's placed between the sixth and the seventh seals. All the asides in the book of Revelation focus on the people of Yahweh. So we're dealing with the world and all the plagues. Now God says, oh, by the way, this is what's been happening to the Christians. We got a little glimpse of that with the martyrs, but that didn't really tell us what was happening. Most of the time when God goes to the aside, he's not hitting the pause button and saying, let's talk about this. He's saying, this is what's happening at the same time, but this is what's happening to Christians. The plagues are what's happening to the world. The asides is what's happening to Christians. So, chapter 7, verse 1. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, so that no wind could blow on the earth, on the sea, or on any tree. Now, who are the four angels? We don't know. But they represent the four cardinal points of the compass, north, south, east, and west. That's very clear, the four corners of the earth. And yes, the earth doesn't have corners, but metaphorically it does when you think of a compass, right? Winds, every time you see the winds of God in the Bible always represents his providence, his judgment, him stepping into space, time, and matter to work his right hand of justice and redemption. Isaiah chapter 63, 64, I always forget which chapter it is, says this cosmic giant comes stomping on the nations. And he says, who is this? And the cosmic giant responds and says, it is I, Yahweh, and I am working my right hand hand of redemption and judgment on the nations. That's what the four winds represent. Because every time God does this, he says, I wrap myself in the four winds of the storms and I get on my chariot with my flashing arrows and I break through the sky and split it open and I unleash my judgments with the Assyrians or the Babylonians. This language is used a lot in the Bible. He did it with the Assyrians. He did it with Sisera, the judges, all that kind of stuff. What God is saying is before he unleashes the four winds, something needs to happen. The believers need to be sealed. Now that lets you know that this is not the pause button. Because he says before judgment is unleashed, they need to be sealed. That implies that this is happening before the four horsemen. Because the four horsemen have already happened. They've already been unleashed. This is saying that hasn't happened yet. Before the winds are unleashed. Before the earth is harmed, it says. So this makes it very clear that this passage is parallel. 
this passage is parallel. I saw another angel ascending from the east who had the seal of the living God. He shouted out with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given permission to damage the earth and the sea. This angel is coming from the east. In the Bible, every time somebody moves eastward, they're, they're going into exile. Either God is sending them in exile because of their sin, Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden, or Israel out of the land of promise into Babylon, which is in the east, or they're willingly exiled themselves out of the presence of God because they don't like God. Like Lot when he leaves eastward to go to Sodom and Gomorrah, or Cain when he goes eastward to rebel against God. And so therefore, every time you're moving westward, you're going into the presence of God. Because when you're moving eastward, you're going out of the eastern gate of the tabernacle into the world. But when you're moving westward, you're going into the temple or the tabernacle of God. So this angel is coming from the east, moving westward, which means he's coming to the presence of God with a seal. And he shouts out to the four angels, Do not damage the earth or the sea or the trees until we have put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Now I heard the number of those who were marked. This seal comes from Ezekiel chapter 9. In Ezekiel chapter 9, God says, Seal all the people of Judah before the Babylonians come and destroy them. This is not the first time that Christians have been sealed. So this clearly refers to Ezekiel chapter 9 where he says, Seal all the believers in Judah so that they will not be harmed when the Babylonians come. Because God said... If you resist the Babylonians, you're resisting me and they'll kill you when they come. But if you don't resist the Babylonians, you're not resisting me because this is coming from me and I will spare you. So the true believer will obey God and not resist. So they're sealed and they're protected from the Babylonians killing them. And the non-believer who doesn't trust God does not and they rebel against him and they're killed. And that's the context from Ezekiel 9. Now what they're sealed with on the forehead is the towel. T-O-W. It's literally spelled, it's when you spell the word out. We can't really spell, or sorry, the letter out. We can't spell the letter A out because it's A. But Tau has an actual word. And you can spell it out. And it's, it looks like, and today it looks kind of like a house, like a little um, horseshoe, like a square uh, horseshoe. And um, not rounded off, but squared on the edges. And it, it's spelled out T-O-W. And that's what's going to put on their forehead. It's the last letter in the Hebrew alphabet. And in the ancient world, it looked like a plus sign or an X. Some people have tried to say this is the cross and you're being sealed with the cross. That might be possible, but the cross didn't exist in the ancient world when Ezekiel was being sealed and the believers were being sealed. And most of the time it was drawn as an X. And not all crosses in Rome were crosses either. So it was a plus sign and, or an X, and that's what the towel is. And I think the idea is, is that they're being spared all the way to the end of God's plans. Now, even the final things will not get them. And the idea is that they're getting sealed in their forehead. Now, this most likely is a seal that you cannot see. And this comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, 4 through 5. It's called the Great Shema. It's the most important passage to the Jews. And in Deuteronomy chapter 6, it's called the great Shema, which means the great hearing. And Shema is the Hebrew word for hear. And hear doesn't mean just hear, like, yeah, mom and dad, I heard you. It means you hear and respond and obey and do and put into action. So in verse 4, it says, Hear, O Israel, Yahweh is God. Yahweh is one. 
You must love Yahweh with all your God, with all your mind, with your whole being, and with all your muchness. These are the words I'm commanding you to today. You must keep in mind and you must teach them to your children and speak them as you sit in your house and as you walk along the road and as you lie down and as you get up. You shall tie them as a reminder on your forearms and fasten them as symbols on your forehead and scribe them on door frames and your houses and your gates. They took this literally and they took these verses. They put them on scrolls. They sealed them up. They put them in little wood boxes and they put them on their door frames and they put them on their foreheads and they strapped them to their arms to constantly remind them to not forget God. And this is called the Great Shema. It's the most important thing. You go to Israel, anywhere you go, you'll see those things on people's doors. And the idea was God said, you must keep these truths on your forehead, your mind. It must shape the way that you think all the time. You must bind them to your hands. I mean, you must shape your works and your actions all the time. And you must bind them to your doors. I mean, your house must live this out. And you must teach this to your children all the time. And the idea is that this is where you're being sealed on your forehead and your mind. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The helmet of salvation. Take every thought captive. Salvation is in the mind. It begins in the mind, not the heart. The heart just follows the mind. This is the idea is that they're being sealed in their forehead. What are the name of the marked? How many are there? The um, four. I saw, I heard the number, and the number of those were 144,000 sealed from all the tribes of all the people of Israel. And he goes through and he lists all the tribes. Some people say that this is Israel coming back to Christ in the tribulation period. Some people say that this is only the Jews. The problem is, these numbers are 12,000 perfectly for each tribe. That's a really perfectly conveniently rounded out number. And whenever you see rounded out numbers, one, numbers are never literal in Revelation. They're never literal in apocalyptic literature. And whenever they're rounded out in the Bible, they're never literal. The idea is 12 is the number of completion when it comes to the people of God, the 12 tribes of Israel. And so the idea is that this is a multiple of 12 times 12 times 10 times 10, right? 10 times 10 times 12 times 12. That's how you get 144,000. Well, why is this important? 10 times 10 is 10,000 upon 10,000, right? What does that represent? An uncountable number. Every time you see 10 upon 10 upon 10, it always represents an uncountable number. And then 12 times 12 is... The 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 disciples, just like the 24 elders. And I don't think this number is meant to be taken literally that only 144,000 Jews will come to Christ ever, or only 144,000 come to Christ in the seven year tribulation. I think what God is saying is that a complete number of Jews will come to Christ, a complete number of people will come to Christ. What are your thoughts on the fact that? Why do I not take this literally? First, the 12 tribes are mentioned, but Dan's never mentioned. Dan's left out. Why aren't they included? Could be that Dan is left out because they brought idolatry in the land. They're, they opened the gateway to the worst idolatry ever, and they're left out. What's also interesting is that Joseph is mentioned and Manasseh is mentioned, but not Ephraim. Now, what does that mean? Jacob had 12 sons. One of those 12 was Joseph. Joseph then had two sons. Manasseh and Ephraim. When Jacob blessed all the sons, he blessed his sons. In chapter 49, 
but he also blessed the two sons of Joseph. He elevated them to the same status of all of his sons. So in some ways, Joseph got multiplied into two. So if you have 12 sons and Joseph gets multiplied into two, how many tribes do you have? 13. There's actually 13 tribes of Israel, not 12. Now, why does God have 13 when he's the author of math? Like he can't count all throughout the Bible. He says 12 tribes, 12 tribes, but there's actually 13 because Joseph gets replaced by Ephraim and Manasseh. So in one way, they're one tribe. Joseph is one, but they're also two because they'll all get their own land and their own inheritance. So this is a baker's dozen where you have a 13th extra in case one goes bad. God always has his 12. And whenever he lists the 12 tribes, if he wants to list all 12, he collapses Ephraim and Manasseh together and calls them Joseph, and he has his 12 tribes. But let's say they're going into war. The Levites are priests. They're not allowed to fight in a war. So you're not sending your 12 tribes into war. You're only sending your 11. But if you really have 13, then you can get rid of Levi, uncollapse Ephraim and Manasseh, and you have 12 tribes going into their war. What if one tribe screws up so bad that you don't want to bless them and you want to curse them and you don't want to include them in the list like Dan? Well, then you still have your 12 tribes. And you see this all throughout the Bible, multiple times. I've given you references how every combination is listed. But what's interesting is that it's always Joseph and not Ephraim and Manasseh, or it's always Manasseh and Ephraim. It's never Manasseh and Joseph which means Ephraim and Dan are both being eliminated and God has to put Joseph in there to mean 12. And that doesn't make sense. And so one of the reasons that people take this symbolically of a a huge number of Jews coming to Christ is because the perfect roundedness of 12 doesn't make sense. The 144,000 is very symbolic. And the, the tribal listing doesn't even make sense how God uses it all throughout the Bible third reason why I think that this is metaphorical. Verse 9. After these things I looked, and there before me was an enormous crowd that no one could count, made up persons from every nation, tribe, people, language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, dressed in long white robes and with palm branches in their hands. They were shouting out in a loud voice. He sees an uncountable number of people from every tribe, every language, and every nation standing before the throne of God. Who is that? The Gentiles, right? The word Gentile literally means the nations. And the fact that he says from every nation and every language clearly refers to the Gentiles. Here's where I think the most important thing in this chapter is. When John heard the trumpet in chapter 1, he turned and he saw Jesus, meaning they are one and the same. In chapter 5, when he heard the Lion of Judah, he turned and he saw the Lamb. They are one and the same. John heard the number of Israel being sealed, and he turned and saw the Gentiles stand before the throne of God. They're one and the same. John is saying that both Jews and Gentiles will be believers, and they will all be in on heaven stand before the throne of God. And we can go on this. I, this is a whole, maybe a whole other lesson. Maybe I'll do this next, this coming spring. But the Bible makes it very clear that Israel has always been the people of faith and not the ethnic Jews. When God called Abraham, 
he immediately brought Hagar in, and Hagar gave birth to a son that was made a part of the blessings. Then, when Moses was leading them out of Egypt, it said a great multitude of Egyptians went with the Israelites into the promised land, and they're always called the Jews. All of them. The, the, this huge thousands of Egyptians mixed in with thousands of Jews are called Israel and the Jewish people all throughout the Torah after the Exodus. Numbers, Exodus, Deuteronomy. We saw Tamar. In Genesis 38, Tamar is a Canaanite who marries into the faith. Rahab in Judges chapter 6 is a Canaanite who comes into the faith. We see Ruth in the book of Ruth, who is a Moabite who comes into the faith. Arana, the Jebusite, Ittite, the Gittite, Uriah, the Hittite. Over and over and over again, we see an uncountable number. And every single time, God says, they're all Jews, they're all Israel. Then the Jews got arrogant and said, we are the chosen people of God and we're saved and not the Gentiles because God chose us and not you. Well, Jesus isn't even Jewish, 100%. Because if his great-great-great-grandmother is Rahab, and the other one is Tamar, and the other one is Ruth, he's not even 100% Jewish himself. He's Gentile and Jewish. John looks at the Abraham and the Jews and says, you think you're special because you're biologically come from Abraham? God can make descendants of Abraham out of these rocks. But those who put their faith in God, those are the true Israelites, the ones who repent. Then when we get to Paul, Paul says there's neither Jew nor Gentile anymore. The dividing wall between them both, literally the wall in the tabernacle and the temple that kept them from mixing together, has been torn down by Christ. And now all mixed together, neither man nor woman, free or slave, wealthy or poor, we're all one body in Christ. And then Peter says that we've all been joined together. Then when we get to Romans chapter 9 and 11, God t- Paul tells us that we have been grafted into the same tree as Israel and we are inheriting the same promises and the same blessings as Israel. And then Peter tells us that all those who have faith are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and chosen by God. Those are the words used of Israel and Israel alone. And I think God has made the argument all throughout the Bible that the true people of faith, the true Israel... I mean, if Jesus is ultimate Israel, he's not even 100% Jewish. And we're all adopted in by faith. And when we're adopted by Jesus, by faith, we have this same birth certificate that he would give us as like, I I have his inheritance. I mean, I am him, the same family as him, that kind of stuff. I think the point is that when John heard, he heard Israel. But when he saw, he saw Gentiles. Because the people of faith are both Jews and Gentiles. And they're uncountable. He doesn't give you a countable number. He gives you a symbolic metaphorical number of 12, 12,000, 12,000, 12,000. Too perfect, too rounded out. He doesn't even list all the tribes. And then he gives you this 144,000, which just conveniently is 12 times 12, Israel and Gentiles but also 10 times 10, an uncountable number. And he turns around and sees every tribe in every language, which also includes Israel. And they're also uncountable. And not only that, 
Nobody knows what tribe they come from anymore. By the time of Jesus, nobody knows their tribes. They have been so intermixed and distinct, and they've so intermarried. The Jews have intermarried with so many other nations and so many other tribes. There's no such thing as a pure Reubenite or a pure Manasseh anymore. So it's impossible to have 12,000 from each tribe come back to God because they literally don't exist anymore. They're so intermixed bloodlines that they don't exist anymore. And every Jew knows that at the time of John's writings. So this cannot be literal. What God is saying is, pause. Here's a parallel. At the same time that I'm judging the world after Christ's ascension to heaven, chapter 5, Christ ascends to heaven and takes the throne, and then he begins to judge the world for rejecting him. At the same time that's happening, look, an uncountable number of Jews and Gentiles are coming to God. Chapter 7 is the first humans in heaven. What John is telling you is God is on the throne. He sends Jesus to die for you in between 4 and 5. Christ ascends into heaven in Acts chapter 1. And now Daniel 7, he approaches the throne and he takes the scroll and he sits on the throne. And 6 shows you judging the world now for rejecting him as the Messiah. You reject the Prince of Peace, you will no longer have peace. And then chapter 7 does a side and says, all by the way, at the same time, I'm judging the world for rejecting the Messiah. I'm sealing the believers and they're going to heaven because they're protected by God. Not physically protected, but spiritually protected. Don't fear the one who can destroy the body. Fear the one who can destroy the body and the soul. I think that's the picture you're seeing. At the same time that God is judging the world post-ascension for rejecting him, in chapter 7, he's saying at the same time, there are an uncountable number of Jews and Gentiles coming to Christ. Because if the lamb and the lion are the same by hearing and seeing, then Israel and Gentiles have to be the same by hearing and seeing. It cannot be hearing and seeing are the same in chapter 5, but it's not the same in chapter 7. You cannot change the rules of the grammar. Does that make sense? And what God is saying is Micah chapter 4 and Isaiah chapter 2 says on that day, God will establish his cosmic mountain on earth and he will eliminate all sin and evil. He will bring the day of the Lord onto earth and an uncountable number of people from every tribe and language and nation will come to him onto the mountain. And I think chapter 7 is you're seeing the fulfillment of Micah 4 and Isaiah 2. And it's happening now spiritually in heaven as we all die. And it will literally happen in chapter 21 and chapter 22. And as a result of that, it says this. They shouted out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God, to the one who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. They begin to praise God because they have salvation for the first time ever in human history. Verse 11, And all the angels stood, and there in the circle around the throne, around the elders and four living creatures, as they threw themselves down, their faces to the ground, before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, praise and glory, wisdom and thanksgiving, and honor and power and strength be to God forever and ever. Amen. Remember the songs are a commentary on what has happened. Verse 13, When one of the elders asked me, These dressed in the long white robes, who are they and where have they come from? So he says, hey, John, who do you think these people are? Assuming that John can answer the question, right? And John says, so I said to my Lord, you know the answer. Meaning, I don't know. 
I can't figure it out. Then he said to me, these are the ones who have come out of the great tribulation. Now remember, Christ refers to the great tribulation as the entire time before, between his coming and the second coming. Never in the Bible does the tribulation ever get a number assigned to it. It's never, ever mentioned. The only time you see a number is Daniel, and, that, and even then it's not connected to tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. For this reason they are before the throne of God, and they serve Him day and night in temple. And one seated on the throne will shelter them, protect them. They will never go hungry and be thirsty again. The sun will not beat down on them any more burning heat, because the Lamb in the middle of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to the spring of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes." That word, every tear from their eyes, that phrase that's used as the second coming of Christ when God brings the kingdom of God on earth. I think that this is way too many people for just a seven-year tribulation. And I think all the evidence clearly points to the fact that God is saying, why, why are they so special? Do we believe that we die when we go to heaven? Do we believe that we're sealed by Christ when we accept Christ? Do we believe that when we go to heaven, we're protected and taken for, by him? So why would this not apply to us too? What, what, what do the believers have here from that seven-year tribulation that we don't have? What God is saying is that because Christ died on the cross and, and ascended the throne in chapter 5, now for the first time heaven is opened up and believers can start going to heaven. Today you will be with me in paradise. And, in, and by the end of it all, by the end of the great tribulation, between the first and second coming of Christ, by the time Christ comes back again, there will be an uncountable number of people from every nation and every tribe and every language. Do I desire the return and the repentance of the Jews? Heck yes. In the same way that I desire the repentance of the Americans, the Chinese, the Ukrainians, Hamas, the Muslims, everybody. Jews do not have a special place that God loves them more than everybody else. He loves all the world that he gave his only begotten son. And what God is saying is that I'm going to hold the world accountable for what they've done with my sin, or my son. And if you reject the lamb, you will reap the consequences. The four horsemen. Why are the Jews the chosen people? They were only the chosen people to invite the entire world in. God did not choose them and say, not everybody else. In Genesis chapter 12, God comes to Abraham and says, I've chosen you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will give you a land so that you can be a blessing to the world. Then he went to Abraham and said, go out and be a witness. Then when he comes to Israel, after they come out of the Egypt, after slavery, he says, remember the foreigner. Remember the poor. Remember the slave, because you too were once that. You were to be a light on the hill, attracting people from all the nations. They were chosen. Now, this is a bigger topic. Because the entire world was only thinking only evil all the time in chapter 6. So God disinherited them, so to speak, saying, I will no longer use you to bring people to God. I'm going to choose Israel to bring people to God. But your ultimate purpose is to bring people to God. So that when it's all said and done, will there be only ethnic Jews in Israel? No. If your job 
is to invite people from all tribes and languages into your church, you will cease to be purely one ethnic group, right? If your job as Israel ethnic Jews is to invite people from all over the world into your covenant, Abrahamic covenant, you will cease to be ethnic Jews. And as you intermarry with these new believers, you will cease to be pure Jewish, just like Jesus was no longer pure Jewish. God did not choose them to the exclusion of everybody else. He chose them to represent him so the whole world could come to know him. When we circle the wagons, we are not Christ-like. Does that kind of make sense? And the more people that come into Israel, the more successful God's plan is. And what God is saying is, the Jews failed to really, truly do that like God wanted. But don't worry. I'm God, and I'll make it happen. And one day, the number will be uncountable from every tribe and nation and language. And I think that's the big picture. We can dispute time and chronology. Like I said, I think this is all happening right now, but I'm willing to admit that it's a future thing. But I really, truly believe it's at least happening now. And what God is saying is, now that you have Jesus, whoever rejects Jesus, I'm handing you over a greater punishment. Hebrews makes that very clear. If Jesus is greater than the Old Testament, and therefore Jesus brings a greater salvation, Jesus brings a greater judgment. And from that time of Christ till the second coming, Christ is saying, I'm going to constantly hand you over to a greater judgment than you've ever experienced before Christ because you rejected my son. But those who come to me in faith and repent, I will seal you and you will stand before the throne of God as an uncountable number before the throne from every tribe and every language and every nation. And I promise you this, they will never be able to touch you ever again. I think that's the main point. Does that make sense? So this section began with chapter 6, where God begins to break the seven seals and unleash the judgments. It begins with the four horsemen, the first four, that are unleashed. And then we have two judgments, kind judgments, the, the, the martyrs before the throne, and then the, the, the plagues that come down on the earth where he crushes kingdoms and that kind of stuff. And then the narrator pauses. Pause, not exactly, has an aside. It's kind of like the soap operas. They're like, meanwhile, over here in Becky's house, okay? And so the idea is that this runs parallel. In chapter 7, there's an aside where all the judgments that are being poured out on humanity for rejecting the Lamb gets put on hiatus for the moment, um, not in a real-life chronology sense, but in a storytelling sense. Because when the camera goes from one family to another family, the idea is that in movies, the idea that's all happening simultaneously. Um, but we don't really enjoy watching two shows at the same time. Um, some people do, though, as they flip back and forth. At the same time, this is what's happening to the believers. They're all being sealed. They're being protected, not from physical harm, but from spiritual harm from the damnation, from the condemnation that will separate them from God and, and leave them disinherited from any kind of a salvation. And so both Jews and Gentiles are sealed in Christ together as the church, as the believers. When we get to chapter 8, we leave the aside and the vision transitions back to the sealed judgments because there's one more seal, the seventh one, that is still yet to be opened. 
And this is the pattern you're going to see right before we get to the final seventh judgment in the seals, trumpets, and bowls. God is always going to pause and, and do this aside and say, meanwhile, at the same time, this is also happening. Or in some big picture chronology kind of thing, this is also happening. But remember, the sides are always dealing with the people of God. The judgments seem to deal with the world who has rejected the Lamb, and the asides seem to focus mostly on the people who have accepted the Lamb. And that seems to be the parallel pictures that are here. So in chapter 8, verse 1, we transition back to the sealed judgments. Now when the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stood before God, and the seven trumpets were given to them. Another angel holding a golden censer came and was stationed at the altar. A large amount of incense was given to him to offer up with the prayers of all the saints. And on the golden altar that is before the throne, the smoke coming up for the incense, along with the prayers of the saints, ascended before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and threw it on the earth, and there were crashes of thunder, roaring flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. That's the seventh seal. So when we come back, the seventh seal is open, and it says there was silence in heaven for half an hour. Silence, whenever we see this in the Bible, it is always in the context of a shock, a wow, or even a preparing the heart for something that God is going to do, a meditation. And the, the, there might be a double thing happening here where when he breaks the seventh seal, there's this idea that there's silence in heaven and there could be this shock like, oh my gosh, there's even more judgments to come. This is just unleashed seven trumpets. Seven trumpets. You thought it was done and over with. It's like going into a game and being exhausted and tired and feeling like you're finally going to win and then all of a sudden you tie it and you're going into overtime and you're like, I don't have anything left. And yet even games are enjoyable. This is not enjoyable, the judgments of God. And so there could this be this sense of shock that we thought there were seven judgments. Seven is completion, right? Seven is done. Seven is over with. But now we're launching into a whole other set of seven here. And so there's this, this, this shock, this mouth-dropping open awe. But there also could be the idea that they are, they're expecting it. The idea that the world is so evil, wouldn't there be more judgments? This can't be all the judgments, right? There's still more sin to punish. As they start launching into another phase of the game or the or phase of the story or the narrative, they're preparing their hearts for meditation and silence, getting ready for the things that God is about ready to do. And then that, and, and that it's going to just intensify. Because that's the other thing here, too, is this is an intensification that's happening. But what would be really shocking about this is the fact that everything that we've seen so far is loud and noisy. Visually speaking and auditorily speaking, the minute we jumped into chapter 4, it has been loud. The, 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 these living creatures around the throne of God, the elders, 24 of them, God on the throne with all this light and all the colors of the rainbow coming out of him and the wings beating like thunder and all that kind of stuff. And just at these moments, the elders and the, the angels are bowing down and yelling and a thunderous voice, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty and all this stuff. And, and then you've got the, 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 the lamb coming and taking the throne and there's praise and song. And then the picture switches to the plagues and 
fires coming down and horsemen are coming and violence. And, and if you, you've all seen war movies and just even just watching more movies just makes me like want to cry and freak out and just have like a panic attack, let alone being in it. And, 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 and John is in this weird, I'm in it, but I'm also watching it happen kind of a thing. Um, like a reporter on the sidelines kind of thing, right there in the thick of it, even though he's not truly participating, but at the same time he's visualizing. And it's noise, it's violence, it's destruction, it's judgment, it's colors and all this kind of stuff. And then bam, there's silence. And it would just be deafening. And there's this sense of like, we have gone from absolute noise, visually and auditorily, and now we're entering the silence. And there's a sense of meditation for what is coming. Why 30 minutes? Uh, 30 is a multiple, uh, multiple of three, which is redemption. But 30 is often used in apocalyptic literature to say that this is a long time, but it's limited. It, there is, this is longer than what we usually see as far as minutes go and that kind of stuff. But the idea is that this was a time that was a long time. Have you ever been completely silent in a silent room for 30 minutes, that's a long time. Um, but at the same time, it's still a limited amount of time. It didn't go on forever and ever and ever again. And so that's the idea of this. And so there's a contemplation that's happening here. What does John see? The seven trumpets are now unleashed. Another angel holding the golden censer came and stationed. Now the golden censer, the, the high priest would have this circular censer, a metal container that had holes around it, uh, kind of like those metal tea containers when you put the tea leaves in and drop it in, that idea, but it's big. And they put frankincense in, and the smoke would just billow out. And it represented cleansing. The high priest would wave in front of his feet as he walked into the Holy of Holies to cleanse the path for him to walk into the presence of God on holy ground. He goes up to the altar, the golden altar. Now, this, isn't, this would not be the altar of um, the bronze altar of sacrifice and atonement. This would be the altar of incense. This was right at the curtain. Now, technically, the altar of incense was supposed to be inside the Holy of Holies, but because they had to restock it and relight it every single day, and they were only allowed the Holy of Holies one time a year, that wasn't practical. So they put it right up against the veil right before you entered in the Holy of Holies to symbolically say this should be in the Holy of Holies, but it practically doesn't work that way. And that, that's what God commanded too. And so they, the, 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 the altar of incense represented the prayers of the people going up to heaven. Smoke is the idea of a covenant relationship with God, the fire and the smoke, the pillar of fire, the Abrahamic covenant. And the smoke going up would mingle with the smoke and the fire, the Shekinah glory of God coming out of the tabernacle going to heaven. And the idea is that your prayers were being absorbed into the presence of God and taken up into heaven for God to hear and respond to them appropriately speaking. And so now this represents the prayer of the saints. And he goes to the altar of incense and reaches in and grabs a bunch of the coals or the frankincense or whatever it is out of the altar, shoves it into the censer. So now the smoke from that altar of incense, the prayers of the people, is billowing out of the censer, which is used for cleansing. But then he throws it down the earth and all hell breaks out. The roar of thunder and lightning and earthquakes and fire and all this kind of stuff. And remember, each of the seven, each of the three sets of plagues are going to end with a final earthquake, uh, this seemingly global earthquake, maybe. Um, there doesn't seem to be an isolation here to a certain geography if he's throwing it down on the earth. 
and then there's an earthquake happening. And so this seems to be more global in some kind of a way. And once again, it could be literal that there is some global earthquake, or it could be metaphorical of just earthquakes and, and fire and all that kind of stuff is just symbolic of God breaking into time. And the idea is that God has broken in for the six seals or the seven seals, and now he's going to break back in again for the seven trumpets. It's not done and over with. Whatever pause that we have, don't think it's over with. We're in the eye of the storm, so to speak, and there's another wave to come. And that's the idea here. But what is more important here than whether it's literal or metaphorical, in my opinion, I still think that what's most important is the idea that is being communicated. The idea that is being communicated. What's more important here is that this is the prayer of the saints that's bringing judgment. This, this, is, this is the people, this is Paul. Um, sorry, this is David in the Psalms who says, God, come down and punish them for what they have done. Leave my enemy childless kill their family and yes that's extreme but we're also talking out of the emotions of someone who's been wronged and violated by these people and and he doesn't see any justice anywhere this is the prayers of Habakkuk in chapter one when he says violence 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 everywhere I look there's violence God and you're doing nothing about it and we've all had prayers like this. Why, God? Why, God? Why are you doing this? World War I, World War II, Vietnam, like all these things. Oppression of governments, the um, genocide. Why, 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 God? And these are the prayers of the people being offered up to God, wanting justice, wanting, and God is now raining the prayers down in judgment. And then that's the idea that, yes, it will be delayed sometimes for our prayers to be answered, but God will answer them. And there's a point when, when he does answer this prayer, it is going to be an earthquake of an answer. It is going to be an earthquake of an answer to the prayer. And that's the idea. It's a reminder to us that as horrific as these judgments are, as much as God is taking his hands off, and we're just beating our heads against the wall on each other's heads, and you'd be like, come in and step in and stop this, God. At the same time, there are thousands of years of saints crying out, God, punish them for what they've done to us. And God says, this is why I'm just. This is, the, this is not just some capricious, vindictive God who's punishing the world. This is a God who's responding to his children because he loves them. And they deserve justice. And they deserve for their prayers to be answered. This is the prayers of the people who are making this happen, so to speak. So that is the end of this section.